Uh, but before we do that, um, 1984, it was my uh, freshman year of college, and I was asking the question that many of you have asked at some point in your life. Uh, maybe you're even asking the question now, and that is, what is God's will for my life? Uh, many of us have asked that question before. God, what do you want me to do? Maybe it's in terms of our occupation or where we're going to live or uh, who we're going to marry or something like that. But God doesn't address those specific questions in the Bible. And that might at times frustrate us, but the Bible doesn't tell us who we should marry, doesn't tell us what we should do for a living, uh, but it does tell us what God does desire from his children. And uh, that is one of the purposes of God's law, not only to show us our sin and to remind us that we need a Savior, uh, but God's law is also designed to direct our living, to show us that this is the kind of life that is pleasing to God. And so we're going to read the law of God responsively. Do note that uh, God's law is not only found in the Ten Commandments, it's also found all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament as well. And you will notice that as we read this together. So I will read the part that says minister, and then I would ask you all to respond with the part that says congregation. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We always need to remember that, uh, as Paul says there in Romans, that we cannot be right with God on the basis of our own obedience. There's a lot of people, sadly, in this world who think that somehow through their own efforts they can make themselves acceptable to God, but the Bible is clear that that is not true. Uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Any other gospel, any other message of how to get to heaven is a, a false gospel, a damning gospel. 
but in these verses, we, we see not only that we are sinners who fall short and need Christ, we also see that this is how God wants us to live. This is how we are to respond to his saving grace. Uh, our lives are to be lived as um, sacrifices of praise, sac- sacrifices of thanksgiving for all that he has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would work these things in us more and more, uh, realizing, of course, that we will continue to fall short in this life, and we are so thankful for the, the, the life-giving sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and what he did for us. Uh, we're going to respond by singing a portion of Psalm 103. 103C, a beautiful uh, psalm, beautiful setting of this psalm. Uh, psalm 103 is a, a psalm that uh, teaches us and reminds us uh, that God is a gracious and merciful God. And to any of you here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, uh, the Bible is very clear that God is merciful through Jesus. And all who come to him in true faith will find the forgiveness of all of their sins. And so we're going to sing 103C, Come, my soul, and bless the Lord. We'll sing the first four stanzas, and let's stand as we sing.
before we pray, a couple of things. First of all, we would like to welcome a new member this morning. I'm going to ask uh, Sidney Van Til if you would stand for just a moment. I kind of sprung this on you at the last moment, but uh, welcome, officially designed. It's uh, great to have you. Sydney, as many of you know, is married to Johnny, and uh, Sydney comes to us from Ammon Valley CRC. So welcome to you. We're thankful that uh, you are here and pray that uh, you would be a blessing to us. We know you will be. And we pray that we as a church would be a blessing to you and to Johnny as well. So welcome, Sydney. It's great to have you here. You may be seated. Uh, before we pray, I would like to read Philippians chapter 4 as a, a way to uh, prepare us to come to the Lord's throne of grace this morning. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. These are familiar words for us. They are important words. They are inspired words. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many things that we can be anxious about. uh, Many things that we can be fearful of. uh, But the Lord gives to us a promise that when we come to him uh, and ask him, he will give us peace that will guard our hearts and will guard our minds. And so what a a blessing prayer is. If there's something that's weighing on you this morning, something that you are anxious or fearful about, uh, you know that you can take that to the Lord and uh, he will always hear you. So let's bow before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the almighty creator and sustainer of heaven and earth. You are the one who is enthroned as the sovereign king over all things. Lord, we confess that there are many things in this life that cause us to be anxious. Uh, For some of us, it is health. For some of us, it is relationships or work or school. For some, it is the prospect of the future. But Lord, we thank you for the promise of what we just read, that, that you call us to bring all of our requests to you. And that we know that because of Jesus, you love to hear the prayers of your people. Help us this morning to believe your promise that your peace will guard our hearts and our minds. We pray this morning for those who are suffering. We ask that you would be pleased to grant them relief. We pray that you would comfort those who are lonely. That you would comfort those who are mourning. Lord, we pray especially for Mary Brower that you would surround her with your love and your comfort. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort and that as we grieve, as we go through trials, we know that you are always with us. We pray for direction and wisdom for those who are seeking guidance. We pray for those who are straying from you that you would graciously draw them to yourself. We thank you for the redemption that is ours in Christ. We Rejoice in the wonderful reality that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we confess that we have broken your law in this past week, both in what we have done and also in what we haven't done. And we know that if we have broken your law in just one part, we have broken all of it. Forgive us, Lord, not because we are worthy, not because we have earned it, But forgive us for the sake of the perfect work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the spiritual blessings that are ours in him. And we pray that you would give to us an increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit so that we may learn the wisdom of your ways and walk in your holy paths. 
for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. We thank you for the privilege to welcome Sydney as a new member here at Zion today. We pray for your rich blessing upon her. We pray that you would continue your good work in her life, and we ask that you would use this church, Lord, to be a a blessing to her spiritual life and that you would use her and her gifts to bless us as well. We pray, Lord, that our giving today would be characterized by a heartfelt gratitude for how richly you have blessed us. And as we open your word this morning, we once again ask for the powerful work of your Holy Spirit that we may understand it and apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We now give to the general fund, and that offering will now be taken.
Glenn. Before we uh, open God's word this morning, we're going to sing uh, 79B, Remember Not, O God. Uh, the reason that we are singing this before we look at Revelation 6 is because Revelation 6 uh, is very clear to us that a day of judgment is coming. Uh, there is coming a day when, when Jesus Christ will return. And uh, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he will judge the living and the dead. And it is imperative that we be ready for that day. And the only way to be ready for that day is to be found in Jesus, to be trusting him alone uh, to save you from the wrath that, that all of us do deserve. And so Psalm 79, remember not, O God, the sins of long ago. Uh, he remembers them not because if we are trusting in Christ, he has buried our sins in the depths of the sea. And so let's sing uh, the four stanzas of 79b and let's stand as we sing. invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. And we will be reading the entire chapter this morning as uh, we continue our study of this book together. One of, um, one of my jobs, I think, is to tell you what is true. It is uh, to tell you what is real. Uh, we live in a world that uh, will try to convince us of things that aren't true. We live in a world that tells us that there are no moral absolutes. Truth is relative. Uh, we live in a world that, that tells us that, that men can be women and women can be men. Uh, we live in a world that tells us that there is no God, that uh, human beings just uh, evolved over a period of millions and millions of years. The point is that the world lies to you every single day. 
And so it's important that when we come together, and we get to do this once a week, when we come together that we have our minds reoriented to truth, to that which is true. And so my calling, my job is to tell you not what I think is true. My job is to tell you what God says is true about sin, um, about salvation, about life in this fallen world, about the future. And that's what this chapter is all about. It is God telling us what is real, God telling us what is true. It's a continuation of the vision that began back in chapter 4, and it's a, a beautiful, beautiful chapter, beautiful section of the Bible. And so let's read Revelation chapter 6, uh, the entire chapter. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the, four, the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is uh, kind of the part where we start pumping the brakes a little bit on the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 1 contains a vision, but it's a pretty straightforward vision. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 contain seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, pretty easy to understand. Uh, chapters 4 and 5 contain a vision of God's throne room, again fairly straightforward, as we are reminded of, of who God is and what he has done for us. But you get to chapter 6, and um, it, it starts getting a little weird. 
You've got different colored horses, um, seals being opened on a scroll, sun turns black, stars fall to the earth, every mountain and island disappear. And, and you might be tempted to say, that's kind of enough of the book of Revelation for me. Kind of difficult to, to see what's being said here. I, I want to reiterate to you, and, and I will continue to do this throughout this study, this book is not given to us as some impossible to understand mystery. It's not given to confuse you. It's not given to, to make you give up and go to something easier. Revelation is given to us to give us comfort and peace in a world that is filled with chaos and turmoil. I, I love chapters 4 and 5. They are, they are among some of my favorite chapters in the Bible because they remind us in a graphic way of who God is and what he has done for us. And, and if you were here those two weeks, you remember what we saw. God is sitting on an immovable throne. And everything before him is calm. And, and then we are reminded in chapter 5 of the Lamb, Jesus, the one who is worthy to redeem us from all of our sins. And so we look at those two chapters and we are given this beautiful vision of who our God is. And what he has done for his people. And, and I pray that for you, you have been comforted through that. You have seen that, that this is who God is. This is what is true. Despite, the world, despite what the world may tell me and despite what I may think about things in this life, God is in control. He is on his throne. And, and because of Jesus, Christian, you belong to him. And nothing will separate you from his love. Don't, don't let the world fool you into believing a lie. Don't listen to the lie that there is no God. Don't listen to the lie that, that you're unimportant and that life is meaningless. Don't listen to the lie that there's no eternity. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Don't listen to that because that's not true. And now as we come to chapter 6, as this vision continues... We are told what we should expect to see in this present age. What we should expect to see in this life. In other words, what will life be like between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? And, and this is very helpful for us. What should you expect, Christian, to see in your lifetime? What is true? What is, what is real? And so we're going to look at the six seals of Revelation chapter 6. And we're going to look at it in three parts. Three parts that deal with what is true. What is real. First of all, what is true on earth. That's seals 1 through 4. Second, what is true in heaven. That's seal 5. And then third, what will be true one day. And that is seal 6. And so what is true on earth, what is true in heaven, and what will be true one day. You'll notice that the first four seals contain four horses and four riders. Now in the Bible, the number four refers to that which is universal. We, we continue to speak this way today when we talk about the four corners of the earth. When we say that phrase, that means all throughout the earth. And so these four horses and four riders symbolize that, that everyone will be impacted by the things in these first four seals. And as chapter 6 begins, 
Jesus begins to open the seals on this scroll, and each time, you'll notice, each time one of the four seals is opened, one of the living creatures says, come. Do you notice that as we read it? Verse 1, come. Verse 3, come. Verse 5, come. Verse 7, come. In other words, the, the living creatures are summoning the four horsemen of the apocalypse as we commonly know them. Now, this is a rather terrifying vision. There's all kinds of um, devastation, all kinds of destruction being unleashed here in chapter 6. But there's something we must not forget as we begin this chapter, and that is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are not just on their own doing whatever they please. Remember, Jesus is the one who is opening these seals. Jesus is the one who is carrying out, executing God's eternal plan. One author writes this. He says, how comforting it is to know that the powers and principles that gallop through human history are not wild horses, but that they are directed by our Savior. And so when you look at this world and you see devastating earthquakes, gunmen opening fire on college campuses, unidentified flying objects being shot down. When you see these things in this life, and and maybe some of these things cause you a certain level of fear, it's important to know that Jesus is in control of it all. Children, there might be some things that worry you. There might be some things that you're afraid of. Maybe, maybe children, you're afraid of the dark. Maybe there's something at school that, that worries you. Jesus is always with you, always. And, and, and the things in this world that make us afraid, he knows all about them. And so at the very beginning of this chapter, we need to remember who it is who is opening these seals. It is Jesus. Jesus knows everything that's going on. Jesus is in control of all things. And and even if we don't, and even if we feel out of control, we can be comforted knowing that he is in control. So the first seal is open. You'll notice the first thing that appears is a white horse. And notice what verse 2 says about the rider of this white horse. Its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, there has been a lot of debate over the years about who this rider is. Some people say that this is the Antichrist. Some people say that this writer represents uh, political leaders. Some people say that this writer is Jesus. I'm going to suggest to you that that none of those are correct. One of the, the principles of Bible interpretation is you let Scripture interpret Scripture. In other words, when you're interpreting the Bible, when you're trying to understand what the Bible is teaching you, you you look at other passages of the Bible to shed light on that passage that you are studying. And especially what you want to do is you want to look at other passages within the same book. And so to understand who the writer of the white horse is, we need to understand what Revelation tells us about the color white. In the book of Revelation, the color white is used to refer to that which is heavenly or holy. For example, Revelation 1.17, Jesus is said to have white hair. 
Revelation 2.17, Jesus promises his church a white stone. In Revelation 3.5, those who are victorious are pictured as wearing white garments. It's the same here in chapter 6, same also in chapter 7. In Revelation 19, Jesus is pictured as riding on a white horse. And so based on this, we can eliminate the idea that the rider on this white horse is the Antichrist. We can eliminate the idea that the rider on the white horse represents evil political powers. At the same time, I also don't believe that the rider on this horse is Jesus. And and the reason for that is that here in chapter 4, we are told that Jesus is the one who sends out this rider. And so it, it doesn't seem to make sense that Jesus would be the one sending out himself. And so who then is this rider? Who's riding on the white horse? What does this symbolize? I think the rider and the white horse are a picture of the progress of the gospel. If you look at verse 2, you'll notice we're told that the, the rider came out conquering and to conquer. Now will evil and sin ultimately conquer? Will the Antichrist or evil political powers ultimately conquer? Will evil ultimately have the last word in our world? No. It is Jesus Christ through his gospel who will continue to grow and to expand his kingdom. And that's what Jesus told his disciples right before he ascended to heaven in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The picture there is that the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to progress. It will continue to conquer. We are told this also in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 21. I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life. Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through his spirit, is gathering protecting and preserving for himself a people all throughout the world. And so this first seal is a reminder to us that Christ is continuing to build his church. Now this is an important image for us to see right at the beginning because the next several horses that follow, two, three, and four, we see all kinds of devastation. Verse 4, death. Verse 6, poverty and famine. Verse 8, famine and pestilence. These are not good things. And it's true that, that our world is filled with a lot of bad news. Those are things that worry us. Those are things that, that cause us maybe to lay awake at night. But in the midst of this, at the very beginning of this section of Revelation, we need to remember what Jesus is doing. We need to remember that evil and destruction will not have the final word, that Jesus is continuing to build his church. The gospel is continuing to go out and to conquer and to bring people to saving faith in Christ. We need to keep this in mind as we go about our day-to-day lives. We need to keep this in mind as we pray for and support our missionaries. We need to keep this in mind as we continue to carry out the ministry here at Zion that Christ is continuing to conquer 
He's not a weak savior. He's not an impotent savior. He's not at the whim of the world. He is continuing to build his church. Well, in verse 3, the second seal is opened. Bright red horse comes out. Verse 4 says its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Children, red is the symbol of bloodshed and um, death. And, And basically what you have here is a reminder of two things that we can expect in this life. We can expect, first of all, violence and death in our world. And secondly, we can expect persecution in the church. Now, we have to be quick to say that, that while God is in control of all things, and, and while nothing happens outside of God's will, God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of sin. And, and yet, this red horse and its rider are under the sovereign control of Jesus. Wars don't happen at random. Persecution doesn't come by chance. Next, we have the third seal open. This time, it's a black horse. The rider has a, a pair of scales in his hand, and there's a, there's a voice crying out. Notice what it says in verse 6, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, we don't deal in denarii today, but a quart of wheat for one denarius was about 10 times the normal price. And, and so what you have here is a, a 1,000% inflation. What happens if um, a loaf of bread goes up 1,000%? What happens if that loaf of bread that you buy at Save Mart for $4 is now $40? It won't be long before you're going to have a problem. It won't be long before you may not be able to put food on the table to feed your family. At the same time, notice the end of verse 6, and do not harm the oil and wine. Oil and wine were luxuries of that day. It's what rich people had. And and here we are told that the the red horse and its rider are not allowed to touch touch the luxuries. And and what's being pictured for us is that the, the poor continue to struggle, the poor continue to get poorer, and the rich have no struggles. The rich get richer. Asaph noticed this when he wrote Psalm 73. He said, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. That's our world. We live in a world where some guy named Bad Bunny made $88 million last year. I don't know who Bad Bunny is. I hope you don't either. But he made $88 million. The highest earner on TikTok made almost $20 million last year. And if you don't know what TikTok is, you probably aren't missing much. But that, that's the world we live in. We live in a world where it seems anyway that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. You think of all the homeless. You think of those who have no place to live. You think of those who have no food, if any food, and they're starving. Now, this is reality, the third seal tells us. Now, that doesn't mean we go, well, that's just how things are. That's the third seal. God told us this would happen. Yeah, he did tell us that this would happen. 
But that doesn't mean that the church bears no responsibility to help those who suffer. We can think of the offering that we're going to be taking next week to to help those who have suffered tremendous devastation because of this earthquake in Turkey. We have a a calling as Christians to help those who suffer. And, And who knows what may happen in our lifetimes? Who knows what may come to our nation? Is it possible that the United States will suffer economic collapse? Yes. Is it possible that we may one day struggle to feed our families? Yes. I mean, it doesn't seem likely, but, but this vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is given to us that, that we would understand that these kinds of tragedies are found all throughout human history. And it should not surprise us when it happens. This helps us, of course, not to sink our roots down too deeply in this life, to look instead and to hope for a better world. And then there's the fourth seal. This time it's a pale horse. Actually, the word that's translated pale literally means pale green. Maybe you've, um, you've seen someone before who's really sick, maybe the stomach flu, and, and you look at them and you say, you look green. That's kind of the picture here. This is, a, this is a horse that is a sickly shade of pale green. And, and notice what it says about this horse's rider, verse 8. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Death does not discriminate. Death comes in many forms. And and short of the return of Jesus Christ, death will come for us all. That's what this seal is reminding us. And so seals two, three, and four are a stark reminder of what we can expect in this life. This is reality. It's It's a reminder of what you can expect in a fallen world. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you you should not be shaken by this. You you should not be living in fear because of these things. First of all, because Jesus is sovereign over all of this. All things are under his sovereign care. And, And secondly, we should not fear or worry because the first seal reminds us that Christ is continuing to conquer. He's continuing to go out by his word and spirit and and bring people into his kingdom. His kingdom will conquer all. And and we can rest in that. But that is what is true on earth. We can expect war. We can expect violence. We can expect famine and pestilence and death. Now, second thing we see here is what is true in heaven. Take a look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. The word Slain here could also be translated slaughtered. These are people, children, these are people who were killed because they were Christians. The reality is that that many people over the last 2,000 years have lost their lives because they followed Jesus Christ. I read an estimate the other day that over 70 million Christians have been martyred in the last 2,000 years. 70 million. 
But, but when they were killed, that did not snuff out their lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And that's what John sees here. These martyred believers are, are now in heaven. And, and notice that they are under the altar. In the Old Testament, the altar was the place of sacrifice. These are people who paid the ultimate price for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a price that we ought to be prepared to pay as well. Christ gave himself for us. He he died so that we would live. And and now, out of love for him, it is our privilege to live for him and, and if necessary, even to die for him. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves, do we? We live for the sake of the one who died for us. We live for the sake of the one who gave his life for us. And if that means one day losing our own lives for the sake of Christ, then so be it. And it's a comfort to know that that when we leave this life, however that may occur, however that may happen, we will be in God's presence. And one day Christ will come as the judge and, and he will avenge the blood of all of those millions of Christians who were martyred. And so what is true on earth is that this will be a time of suffering and hardship and death. But it's also true that that Christ is continuing to build his kingdom. He's continuing to expand his kingdom all throughout the world. What is true in heaven is that those believers who have died are now in God's presence. Christian, your believing dead loved ones are now in the presence of God. They are before his throne. That is what is true in heaven. One final thing, and that is what will be true one day. Seal six. The sixth seal is opened, and notice what happens. There's a great earthquake. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes like blood. The stars of of the sky fall to earth. The sky vanishes. Every mountain and island are removed from their places. This is a very vivid and graphic way of saying that this is the end. This is it. The day of judgment has arrived. On that day, no one will be laughing. No one will be indifferent. No one will say, whatever, nothing new to see here. On that day, every unbeliever will be terrified. Every unbeliever will all try to hide themselves from the holy wrath of God. Asia Minor, which is where this book was originally addressed, was was well known for their elaborate series of caves 
And, and when the weather became really severe and bad, people would run to these caves to try to hide themselves from the, the devastating effects of a, a horrible storm or something like that. When the storm of God's wrath comes, people will try to find a place to hide. They will even wish that the mountains would fall upon them. But no one will be able to hide. No one will escape this terrible day. That's what's true. Now, children and young people, this world is going to impress upon you, don't listen to that preacher. Don't listen to what the Bible says. Live your life now. Do what you want. Enjoy your life. Live it up. Don't worry one day about answering to some God because that's not going to happen. That's what this world, children, young people, is going to tell you all through your life. But that's not true. What is true is that this day is coming. Again, my job, my calling is to tell you the truth, specifically God's truth. It's to tell you what's going to be true on this earth so you will not be greatly shaken when there are wars and pestilence and death and trial. It's also to tell you what is true before God's throne so that you would not lose heart, so that you would know that that your believing loved one whom the Lord has taken out of this life is now in the presence of God. They're before his very throne. And it's also to tell you what will be true one day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth. I leave you all this morning with a question. It's a three-word question. It's the question that's found at the very end of this chapter. Who can stand? Who can stand? When that day comes... When the sixth seal is opened, when the Lord Jesus Christ, very God of very God, creator and sustainer of all things, eternal God with no beginning and no ending, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who rules over all of human history, when he returns on that day as the holy, righteous judge of the world. Who can stand? Who will be able to stand in his presence? Now, none of us this morning would be able to stand on our own. None of us would be able to say, Jesus, here's my resume. Here's all the things I've done. None of us will be able to do that on that day. All of us, the Bible says, have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us are able to stand in our own righteousness. The Bible says that the only one who will be able to stand on that day is the one who believes what God says in his word, namely that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save you from that terrible day of wrath. Now, if you do not believe in him, I press upon you again the urgency of this. 
This day is coming. We do not know when, of course, but it will come. Are you able to stand? If you believe in Jesus Christ, I tell you this morning that you do not need to fear that day. You do not need to fear the sixth seal. Because the Bible says that God's wrath has already fallen on his son so that it will never fall upon you. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ became sin for us. He had the wrath of God fall upon him so that all who believe in him will never face that wrath. So Christian, you don't need to be terrified of that day. You don't need to fear the sixth seal. Jesus has taken your place. And now as we go through this life, we will continue to see the events of the the second and third and fourth and fifth seals unfolded before us. But as those things happen, remember your Savior is in complete control. And your life is in his hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you tell us what is real. And Father, as we face the the trials and difficulties of this life, as we are discouraged from time to time when we see what goes on in our world, help us to know that you are in control. And help us, Lord, to anticipate that great day when the Lord Jesus returns and takes us to himself forever. We thank you for what he has done as our substitute to take our sin, to take your wrath so that there would be no condemnation for us. We give you thanks and praise.